netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from fxguide.com. Thanks for listening to this FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery. A couple weeks ago, Mike Seymour hosted an online event with our media partners at Epic Games and Unreal Engine covering virtual production. The event was really well attended, and one of the great parts about it was the Q&A section. However, due to the large number of people who attended the online event, they actually ran out of time to answer all the questions. And uh, Mike had the brilliant idea of doing an FX podcast covering some of those questions that were not able to be answered during the session in more detail. So joining us today is Matt Madden, Director of Virtual Production from Epic Games. I'm really excited to kind of dive into a bit more detail into what was covered in that online event, as well as answer the questions from those of you who attended the event virtually. So let's go ahead and cross that conversation now between Mike and Matt. So Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Um, it was a lot of fun doing that Pulse uh, video that we did, the, uh, the, the live event. That was kind of a lot of fun, wasn't it? Yeah, that was great. It was great to get everyone's insight and exchange uh, some stories and ideas and uh, just different perspectives. It was really a lot of fun. Of course, the problem that I was having, and I'm sure you might have had it a bit as well, is that we can talk about this at so many different levels. And for me, there were some interesting questions popping up in uh, the chat that I was like, well, this is probably not the right forum for that because there'd be like a deep dive. But deep dive is my favorite place to dive. So, <laughs> Right. That's the, yeah. That's the trade-off, isn't it? Because a lot of these uh, areas, you really do want to go uh, deeper, but uh, that could take up a whole hour in itself. Exactly. Yeah. And also, you know, when you've got a panel of uh, four people, um, you know, sometimes it's a bit more difficult to, uh, to cover all those bases. But so let's, let's get into it now. I'm going to start with the obvious stuff, which is LED screens, because that isn't the only form of virtual production, but it's certainly one that we've got an enormous amount of questions about. Right. Um, I'll get to this in a second, because there's some questions about cost. But I just thought I'd ask you if you'd agree with me, there's sort of this sort of base question like hey you know what's a standard and of course it's too early to say what a standard actually is because there's no you know sense of a standard but from my reckoning most of the stages that people are looking at at the moment are around kind of 10 meters by what four or five meters high is that kind of the sort of scale that you see most of these current stages at or are they getting much much bigger than that or i'd say a little bit higher than that because these with these large format cameras, it's easy for something that's four meters high high to quickly uh, show what's above that. You know, so you're a bit more limited in your in your camera move if you stay at four meters. Usually around six meters, I would say on the height. But I think you're pretty uh, pretty spot on on the width. And the other thing about this mic, the volumes or these walls, you know, we have all these different names for what what an LED structure is, right? Um, oh. It really depends on the application, you know. And so, what what a standard is? Is it a standard for a full 360 world that you're trying to emulate, or is it a standard for one part of a world and the rest of the set is live action? So it, it really kind of depends on the type of the type of production and how you intend to use the virtual content. Yeah. Um. The initial sort of one that most people got in their mind, I think, is a cube. But from my talking to people. A cube isn't probably the best place uh, if you've got a choice, is it? No, I would agree. Uh, and I've seen a lot of these cube setups that you're talking about in demos and even uh, 
clients have sent us specs and for feedback. And the problem with the, that right angle in the cube is you get into um, your camera angle starts to, to actually uh, get off track or offline with the, uh, the actual light coming from the wall. And so you have issues like color shift that you have to deal with because you're much less perpendicular uh, to the actual wall itself. So generally a, a rounded wall is better and it doesn't have to be a consistent angle, but uh, typically we suggest having more of a rounded wall than, than a right angle for sure. So let's just deep dive on that straight out of the gate. So there are two things there. Firstly, you don't want to get it too rounded or you're going to get crosstalk from the LEDs, right? Like That's right. That's right. So you have to be mindful of the angle between the LEDs so you're not getting light that's actually uh, carrying over, like you said, the crosstalk of the adjacent LED. So that is an issue. So you can't get too aggressive with that angle. Uh, sound is also an issue. Yep. Uh, if you have one continuous angle all the way through, then uh, especially if you're building more of a, a 270, 300 degree volume, uh, sound is something to certainly be mindful yeah, of. So it's hard surfaces. Um, you know, it bounces. It's not how you would design a soundstage. No, it's actually the opposite of how you would design a soundstage. And so uh, we've actually been talking to some uh, acousticians, which is a new word for me, but they are acoustic engineers. And this is what they do for a living. And we, we asked them, hey, what would you do if you had to build something like this? And they first laughed because they looked at what we were dealing with. It's a hard surface in a cylinder with all the sound bouncing towards the center and this massive echo, they, they were just, they couldn't believe we were shooting in this. But, uh, you know, we, of course, uh, I worked on Mandalorian season one and, and anyone in this kind of environment is dealing with these issues, but you use all the normal production tricks of, of uh, flags and, and, and other uh, set objects, anything you can to break up the sound. But their, their idea was interesting. They came up with a suggestion to alter the angle of the arc throughout the space. So the sound wasn't all being directed back towards center. It was actually throwing it in different places. Oh, it's the opposite help. idea of a lens, right? A lens you want exactly the same curvature to focus it at a point. You're saying, let's make a wonky lens so it never focuses. Exactly. You want, the, right, you want that sound to be dispersed across the whole environment, not, not in one single place, or that echo, you know, that bounce. And that, and so that's what we're looking at uh, and suggesting to our clients for uh, for future builds. The other thing that um, you said there earlier was, uh, you know, having a sharp corner because you've got a box. Just to um, explain that a bit further, people don't know, depending on the LEDs you're getting, the actual LEDs aren't all at the same flat kind of space. So if you were to cut a LED and go in like, so you're about two inches off it, they wouldn't all be exactly at the same height, which means if I'm on an, a, a very obtuse angle, like I'm glancing down the, the wall, it can actually look kind of pink. I'm thinking about the demo one at SIDGRAPH. When I was there, of course, it looked completely normal. Um, right. I, I went up the back and took some photos. I was at about the same height as the, uh, the ceiling panels. And in my photos, it was coming out red. And I'm like, is that some kind of weird frequency thing? And of course, what I realized is that the red LEDs were poking out just a little bit more. And so when I got in a glancing angle, it was kind of pink. Now, if I was underneath it, or the, literally the people that were standing underneath it in my photo were completely illuminated normally because they're getting the straight light coming down from above and it's even. 
It's just that to the camera, seeing it at a glancing angle, it started to go funky. Right. And that actually uh, is dictated also by how you orient the LEDs. So it's going to have a larger color shift, either left to right or top to bottom. Typically, it's oriented so that the color shift is more top to bottom. So your red, green, and blue actually are stacked vertically. So when you look at it left to right, you get a more consistent color, even at those sharper angles. But you're right. At some point, uh, there's the emission angle. So the the LED is just going to die in terms of how much you can actually throw at the camera at a certain angle but it will also start shifting. And so that's why this right angle can be, uh, to, to have that in camera, if it's just for lighting and reflections off to the side, that's one thing. But if you're trying to do a sweeping pan or a large tracking shot from one, one surface to a perpendicular surface, all in one continuous go, then, then that's a pretty big ask. The other thing that people were asking was, you know, like, what is the, uh, the cost and stuff. Well, it's very hard to get to the cost, but I think the first thing you would say is it really depends on the the quality, if you like, of the LEDs. And to that, I think you'd probably agree what 2.8 is kind of a standard pitch that um, most people are working to on their LEDs. It is probably the most common right now for, I would say, mid to high end production. Yeah, 2.8. What, what's the best you've seen? And how sort of far away is that from being um, more accepted? Well, that's an interesting question, what best is, because we're seeing more LED panels that are that have uh, a smaller pixel pitch, you know, down in 1.5, 1.7 range and, and, and that nature. But the other factor you have to consider is brightness and, and color shift and reliability and consistency across all LEDs. So what we're seeing is some manufacturers, not all of them, but some of them, are pushing to get uh, more LEDs on a panel, which means a smaller pitch, but at the expense of these other things, like brightness especially, and like color consistency. I would have thought color consistency was a bigger problem than than light levels, because I would have thought light levels, are, uh, like you're not pumping those screens normally, are you at sort of 100% max? Uh, well, Another interesting question. Some of these panels have a max brightness of say five, six, seven hundred nits, while others go up to two, three times that. Right. So there is quite a variety in, in the actual brightness of these panels. And that's another factor uh, that, that you really have to consider when you're choosing. The reason I said color consistency is because I've lit obviously with LED panels and I learned pretty early on actually that LEDs are not all the same. And in fact, they're very much not all the same. So two things uh, for those that are listening. So there are there are literally companies make LEDs and they have bins, like quality bins. Like these are the really good ones and these are the not so good ones and these are the ones that are kind of a bit off spec. And the theory is if you buy a cheaper uh, screen, it looks pretty good to your eye because what they've done is they've used a bunch of ones that aren't in the best bin, but they figure they'll average out, right? They'll like be like some good ones, some bad ones, some up, some down, and you'll get an even color out of it. The really good manufacturers, um, and I'm thinking now like people that are like at the high end brands you'd know, are spending more money to buy the more accurate LEDs. Um, so that's a really big point. And then the second point is, and maybe you can talk to this, Matt. The, if you do a frequency response of LEDs, there are kind of spikes and troughs in a spectrum of light that's coming off. And, and how those spectral spikes affect human skin tones is an incredibly key difference to, say, tungsten, right? 
which is a very different spectral analysis. And so we really are talking about, you, you know, to the eye, it may look okay, but you're actually going to get changes in skin tone that you may not be wanting if you're buying kind of cheaper, cheerier LED panels. Uh, absolutely. And you hit on a lot of good points there, Mike. And the other thing is the consistency across them. You touched on that and how they're mixed uh, in certain batches, at least with some, some uh, manufacturers. And that's where calibration becomes uh, a real challenge too, because if you, if you think about it, you have all this variation across individual LEDs on a single panel that you have to account for. And the LED processor companies realize, okay, if we're trying to output a certain amount of light from this panel, we have to look at the whole thing. We can't just assume they're all going to be emitting the same amount and same colors. We have to calibrate them down to the individual LED. So it's a it's actually a really painstaking process to to ensure that they can provide consistent color and brightness across those different types of panels. So uh, it, you're kind of working with the least common denominator in the batch if you want that consistency. So if some if uh, the blacks don't hold up or the brightness isn't the same on others. You have to work within what they can all do across a panel in terms of calibration if you want to have consistency for the whole panel. Otherwise, hey, you start to you, you start you to calibrate? get into noise. I'm sorry. How do you calibrate? So, like when you walk onto a Mandalorian type stage, like a you know high end decent quality stage, like what is the calibration process? Well, uh, that usually comes with the the processors. So there's a there's a a couple of new techniques that the special cameras that the the companies have, the processor companies in particular, and it's it can take uh, ten minutes for any, a single panel sometimes to actually calibrate. So um, I don't, I haven't done it myself. We usually work with folks like Brompton and others to actually do the calibration, but it's a very detailed spectral uh, and luminance analysis of each individual LED. Uh, under every possible setting to determine what they can actually produce. And then the calibration process, again, uh, dictates what the consistent light and luminance and, and spectral values are for a given signal. And that's the end result. So, um, and that's really the challenge. And then when you're talking about thousands of panels on top of that, that you have to calibrate, um, it's a pretty significant undertaking. They're supposed to come out calibrated from the factory, but yeah. these processor companies are, are saying, no, actually we need to do it again because that's really just kind of an estimate. When you're building the stage, we need to know where a panel is relative to the camera, right? We often talk about tracking, like oh, where's the camera in the volume? And that's, you know, I think well understood tech by most people that you can do camera tracking, but I actually need to know where the, where the screens are. And I know in broadcast in particular, uh, companies like Disguise use their uh, Omnical to do a spatial mapping and actually do structured light to try to work out what's what. But like, like what is the process of actually determining? Because I mean, you can't just say, oh, well, I've got a 3D model of where the kind of guys were meant to put up the panels and let's hope that they put them up where, where they thought they did. Right, right. We use that as an estimate. And then you need to do some kind of LIDAR is what we often recommend, uh, possibly photogrammetry. We haven't done the structured light approach. There are groups that will actually do that, that, that their job is to integrate LED walls. And, uh, but to your point, you need to have a highly accurate 
uh, 3D version, a mesh of the physical structure, not uh, the design of what it will be. <laughs> not the CAD file alone. Yeah. Right. That's a good yeah. starting point. But. Yeah. Because, I mean, obviously, in some cases, like maybe um, for a skylight kind of sky dome, you're not thinking that that's particularly accurate, but it's incredibly accurate uh, when the camera is moving if its relationship to the virtualized stuff is wrong. And of course, if the LEDs are physically not where the camera system thinks they are, that would all not quite line up. Um, can I ask another question? Like the, uh, while we're on that tracking thing, is there a particular type of tracking for the camera, getting back to that, that you think in stages is the kind of de facto go-to um, recommendation for like what you'd set up as the capture volume to know where the camera is? Uh, I think it really depends on the condition, Mike. Um, for example, you, uh, the broadcast groups that are doing LED walls and, and camera tracking and compositing work, as you know, compositing is, has very strict criteria for, for, uh, for live compositing, at least. Uh, so in that case, though, the cameras are, are very predictable. You know, they're on these rigs that move rather slowly. They, they push in, they move out, they track, you know, a bit of panning, but they're not like what you see in some of the hardcore film and TV productions. And in those cases, uh, it is a bit of a mixed bag. Um, I've used a lot of the optical tracking systems, like the mocap version, if you will, with integrated IMUs. And the reason the IMU is so important is because the optical itself is again, gets you a really good starting point, but it's prone to a bit of noise. And you don't want to overfilter that because that can lead to a little bit of of, uh, of looseness in the in the camera yeah. track and or softness and, and latency. So you, you don't want either of those. And so a, a, a high-grade IMU, which has a, a, a gyro and accelerometer in it, is essential really for any of those systems. It's It's not just... Whether it's an inside-out, you have a camera mounted on, say, your Alexa or your Sony with, with reflective dots on the ceiling, that's one approach uh, that is reliable. But the problem is you, you get a physical set in there, grips start coming in with, with other flags or something else that you didn't anticipate, and all of a sudden the camera sees about a third of those. Right? So you have to have a few uh, tools in your belt to accommodate those changing conditions on a production. So... Uh, for the large volumes, we have often used the, the optical capture, but those have their limitations too. Uh, they're not as pixel accurate just for the nature of the process of something that's more of an inside out, uh, like a, a stereo camera rig, or like I mentioned, the ones that are, that are mounted on the camera looking up at, a, at some array of reflective markers. And the inside out tracking uh, tends to be more accurate, but also has challenges with consistency and robustness because there's so many things that can change in the field of view of that camera during production. So really, it's about understanding what you're shooting. What kind of show is it? Are a lot of things changing? How much can you predict where the camera is going to be and what you would have access to in terms of visibility for tracking? Once you define those, then the options start to become a bit clearer. So the, the next related point to that is what it's the camera seeing. And the camera is seeing, of course, the people in the set, but they're also seeing the LED screens, which brings us to some questions we had from the, um, the Pulse thing. So uh, Jesse Sperling, uh, Scott Lynch, like a bunch of people sent us uh, questions during that 
And they were asking, hey, what about color space? Like is ACEs something that we should be incorporating? Um, and, and other people just asking simpler questions like how good is the color reproduction on the screens and do they have enough dynamic range to, to get final visual effect shots in camera? Uh, so to the second question, yes, they do. Uh, they certainly are capable of, of wide gamut and high dynamic range. And so then it's a matter of getting that content to the screen. And so then if you back up to the actual asset creation process, because that's where it all starts, right? Yep. Um, we have the majority of the assets being created now are still typically in an sRGB type space or something very comparable. Um, don't have to be, but that's what we're seeing more often than not now. So the first thing you have to make sure you're doing is tracking what color space these assets are created in. Because if you want to convert it to something else, or if you want to work with it, uh, in any other form, you have to know any conversion, you have to know what you're starting with. Right. Um, so currently in the, the standard, uh, workflow with unreal, it assumes assets are coming in in sRGB. It will then convert that to uh, scene linear, so it actually takes off that that uh, that uh, display referred curve. So you work in linear. So any any edits you're doing to color, any math you're applying to color chain will be linear in Unreal. So in other uh, words, so that the math works properly. It correct, and, and because it's a nightmare if you if you try to work with different gammas at the same time with all yeah. kinds of effects and calculations. Uh, and then you have the option as part of the post-process to tell, uh, to convert and uh, transform that color to some other space and some other encoding. If you want to work in a wider gamut from the start, currently the best way to do that, let's, and we have, Clients that are working in ACES in, uh, in, with their assets. So they're actually converting that imagery to ACES CG. Yeah, and ACES. building, Yeah, and, and building, building the content um, that, that way and, and then importing it into Unreal. And in that case, you take off that sRGB conversion or transform curve that we would normally apply to it because you're, you're, you're already linear with ACES CG. So, uh, so the rest of that workflow is the same until you send it to whatever display uh, device you're sending it to. And in this case, we're talking about LED walls. So you then need to transform it again to uh, the, for the color space and encoding that the LED processors are looking for. And they have different uh, options as well. You can send Rec. 709, Rec. 2020, DCI. I thought Rec 2020 was kind of um, not necessarily the best, but just the one that was seemed to be most popularly. It definitely is gaining popularity now because mm -hmm. of its wide gamut, no question. And that's what we're seeing more often than not with with uh, the newer workflows that are being produced and and the folks that are more up to uh, up on uh, and interested in exploiting wide gamut on the walls for sure. For those that are listening, just to sort of grasp how complicated this is, even though it sounds incredibly simple, so so you've got the 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 color that it is made in, the color that that Unreal is dealing with, then the color space or the, the sort of the nature of the range of colors sent to the monitors. 
Of course, then there's how that's displayed by the LEDs. And then how is that perceived by the CMOS chip in the camera? Um, you know, bearing in mind, of course, that yeah. the CMOS chip in the camera is doing its own stuff. And of course, that then gets recorded and handed on down to post. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and Mike, can I just add, because that's a really good point, too, is developing uh, an accurate, uh, essentially a 3D LUT that emulates uh, what the camera, well, what's coming from the render through the LED processors, through the panels, to the sensor, to a calibrated monitor. If you want to evaluate content, let's say you're in the art department looking at uh, virtual worlds with the DP and the director and production designer, and you want to evaluate these worlds on a monitor in your lab or your art department, ideally you have a way to emulate how it's going to look through the camera, right? Not just here's what the world looks like, and then when we put a camera on it, it's going to, we know what it should look like. Well, ideally you want both, right? Here's, here's the world in its quote natural state. Here's what it looks like when you look through the camera so they can evaluate it both ways. And because that's where the DP also gets involved, of course. Now you're talking about looking through the virtual camera. So when they get on stage, that's what they expect to see is the world that looks that way. Right. And so you have to account for that. And then on the day you want to remove that transform because then the camera and the LED processor uh, uh, and the wall, that whole process are going to apply it naturally. So you have to come up with a, that separate step if you want to be able to evaluate the content in the way that will ultimately look through the lens. I mean, the whole principle of ACES is, hey, my Canon camera is going to have a different kind of perception of color than my ARRI camera. So I need to sort of normalize everything to one space. Um, now, that's the math end of it, which I love. If you're listening to this and you're thinking, whoa, Matt's lost me a little because he's like above my pay grade. Let me just simply say this. Matt, didn't this transpire on the case that the art department painted some props that were gray on, I think, Mandalorian, right? On the same gray had to be extended into the LED screens because obviously it was a set extension. And of course, you want the two grays to match. Now, that sounds like the most trivial problem in the world. But if it isn't right, you have an art department working at midnight repainting the um, prop. <laughs> it's not, yeah, it's, uh, it's dirt, it's everything. Because yeah, you it's also, are, yeah, it, you're also factoring in the effect of the, the environment light on the physical dirt, on, on the physical set. And, and so anytime you're merging one to the other, uh, it's a challenge. And you never, you never nail it theoretically uh, ahead of time where you, you load it all in and go, yep, it's one-to-one, -one, perfect transition, can't tell where one ends and the other one begins. What, what you do in that case is you hope to be at a point where you're just fine-tuning, right? It certainly shouldn't look drastically different. Yeah. But by the time all the set lighting comes in, and, and you can't predict exactly how the DP is going to light it anyway. When yeah. you get it close An LED light or a, um, sorry, a, um, a tungsten light to yeah. light something. That's right. Exactly. But 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 you bring up a good point and, and another tool that we have that's critical for this process, and that that is the color correction regions that you can build very quickly and interactively inside of Unreal. Yeah, explain that because I think that is a amazing tool. Yeah, it's the, really the only way that I know of that you could do a seamless blend because of all the variables we're talking about. All, all the all the math you have to do up front 
to get as close as possible is certainly necessary. But even after that, there's the, there's the subjective tweaking that you do at the very end. Once the camera is placed, and you don't do it before because things could change. And so you can't get too, too uh, slick or ahead of yourself with start, you know, and tweaking the content because, well, for first of all, the DP is going to say, what the heck are you doing changing my, my dirt over there? But uh, once you frame the shot and, and everyone sees that transformation, and we'll use the dirt example of, of that physical dirt set and rocks into virtual, then you can add these color correction regions. And they're basically, uh, cubes that you can transform into rectangles, whatever shape you want. Uh, and you place those in the field of view of the camera, and then you can blend that, you can apply that color uh, through a 3D cube, uh, the intensity and color values uh, integrated in with the textures that are in that world. So it's a 3D change, not a 2D change, which is really important. And then you can also taper that so it fades off into the rest of the actual set, virtual sets to get that transition. I think most people would be familiar with the idea of a power window from the days of color, you know, on a color, yeah. there's a power window. You've got yeah. like power bubbles. That's right. Good like, analogy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, right. And, and then sometimes you're going to need multiple power yeah. bubbles because the, the, the as the uh, terrain changes in the virtual world relative to the physical, it's not a consistent relationship necessarily. So you may need to blend those bubbles across each other uh, throughout that transition area from the physical to the virtual. <clears throat> We're just going to also quickly touch on latency because I think that's important. And one of the things that affects latency, obviously there's the processing to work out where the camera is. That's got nothing to do with even Unreal or even the scene. It's just that's a frame or two. But once it gets in and, and obviously Unreal has to do its rendering and we have to get stuff out, there is network issues. now. I'd just like to get your opinion on this because people are setting up networks and most I think are NDI, but is that the standard or is that just a stepping stone on? I mean, it's not the NDI is that particularly old. It's only been around for a few years, but like trying to get the the stuff moved around uh, your, your internal network off the side of the stage isn't in itself like another one of those places you don't want to lose a frame or two, do you? No, uh, certainly not. But honestly, the networking, uh, Personally, I haven't seen the big hit on the networking. Uh, it's been in the rendering and the actual uh, projection, the, the actual calculations of the inner frustum and the rendering of the background, and then then the processing within the LED processors and then to the wall. What, so, what's, the, what's a good number that I should be aiming at? Like this is the loop, right? The time yeah. it takes for that whole system to update in terms of frames. We've got, as I said, a couple of frames here, a couple of frames there. Yeah. What would be a, a target number that you'd be wanting to see on a professional stage? Ideally, uh, around six frames at 24 wow. FPS. Six, um, that's high. Yeah, I thought I'd it is high. say 10. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm feeling very old fashioned. Six, that's incredible. Well, no, I said ideally. Uh, what generally what we see is about eight and I think we can shave some I'm saying the collective we too it's all of us as an industry yeah. and and so from the, when I said eight is kind of the standard what I'm seeing as, as seven we got it down to at, uh, last year on a lot of tests and some shoots that we did uh, but we still had the camera tracking at two frames not because it took that long but because 
uh, we were only sampling every 24th of a second. So it was really just a hair over a frame, but because it wasn't available at that instant, it had to wait for the next one. And so you, you gain almost a whole additional frame unnecessarily. So uh, the camera, the tracking could be at 120 FPS and um, take uh, six or seven frames at that rate. So it's just a little bit over uh, a full frame at 24. And so since then, in the last year, that's been, uh, that's been knocked down. And I think most tracking systems can do it in a frame. Um, the other area is the, the rendering to the wall. So all these different pieces of the wall that need to be rendered, uh, that's something we're working quite a bit on in terms of efficiency uh, and, uh, and resolution. Uh, because in the original setup that we had, just a bit about this rendering process, uh, we actually had to render the inner thrust on what the camera sees on every single PC. Uh, meaning, let's say you've got this big volume, you, you're mapping the background and breaking that background up into a dozen different pieces. Okay. Yeah. And, and so you have a dozen PCs with high-end quadro cards on them. Every single one of those PCs had to also render what the camera sees. So you're rendering it 12 different times for the same image. So not very efficient, but it worked. Uh, but there's certainly better ways to do it, especially now with some uh, some of the new tech that NVIDIA has out. And so we're doing a lot of R&D with the GPU texture sharing now and, and things like Mosaic, where you can render one big image very efficiently. And so the whole idea there is to not render that same picture 12 times on 12 different machines, but maybe have one machine with three or four GPUs on it. And so you could render one big image for the for the camera and then the other background images on other GPUs and then copy that inner frustum, that inner picture to the other backgrounds and then send that to the walls and uh, much faster, much more efficiently than we did uh, in the previous generation. I mean, you say the previous generation, like <laughs> this is <what> you <laughs> That's, you know, it all, all of two years ago, but yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, now, we do get a lot of questions from people, and I, I'm not ignoring them um, about cost, but I think we've already established that it's like very variable depending on, you know, what you're using it for, how uh, how big it is. Um, like there's a lot of uh, cost. Even the cost of hanging the overhead LEDs is a significant factor because if you've got a big space. That's a big um a big ask to not have any pylons or anything holding up the, the LEDs from above. So we probably can't give anyone actual numbers, but what I would like to ask you about in terms of budgets is um, more like opportunities for, for addressing this. And one of the ones that I thought was interesting is somebody, uh, Dave Smith asked us, how much of this could I use the cloud for? Is there any of this that we can use the cloud for? And I, coming on the back of that latency discussion, um, yeah, I think it's a reasonable yeah. question, but... Yeah, for sure. Uh, certainly the cloud is great for uh, pre-production, designing assets, collaborating with different teams, especially in the, the situation we're in now where we uh, typically can't be together. Uh, it's wonderful. And uh, scouting even where that, that there's an interactive component to, to live camera and set scouting and that type of thing and tech fizz and such. Uh, and for posts, 
Same thing, evaluating the content and post, evaluating edit. We all know the cloud is really good for that kind of stuff. Once you get into production, at least what we're talking about, where it's live in-camera content, uh, it's, it's not ideal. We're not there yet. Uh, we, we want every millisecond we can get uh, to make sure that that content gets to screen as soon as possible. So uh, I know there's a lot of interest in that, and we've been approached by a few big companies that want to explore that. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, we just talked about latency, and, and we're lucky, just back to latency for one second, the way this approach that we use and just the nature of the process really with the LED walls and the way it's done as opposed to a composite, um, we kind of get away with a little bit with the, the nature of this process in that we render a larger area than what the camera can actually see intentionally. So if there is a bit of latency between what the physical camera is doing and what the virtual camera thinks is happening, we, we have that buffer zone so that the perspective is correct from the, uh, from the virtual camera, even though it hasn't, it might be a slightly behind the physical camera with certain moves. And that's something that uh, with compositing, it just adds more frame delay, right? If, you, if you're doing a comp and you have green screen and you're projecting a virtual image on the, somewhere in that, or covering the green, um, and you have all this latency in this process, well, there's gonna be a longer and longer time before the camera operator can see the result of that comp because you have to wait until that's done before you can send it back to the operator. And that's no good, you know, especially if they have a, a, a handheld move or steady cam where they're really dependent on seeing that feedback interactively. Yeah, if, if you're listening and you're sort of a little confused as to why this latency is so important, that's a great example, Matt. Like I put a, I put a square up just behind your head because I want to get green screen on your hair. And if that square wasn't, as you say, a bit outside what I need and the camera operator quickly pans to the right, it might be that he goes off the green before the green has a chance to move with his camera. And another way of thinking of that is it feels like a bit spongy, right? Like, you know, I would stop and then a second later, of course, not a second or two, but anyway, a second or later, it would all catch me up and it would stop. And so the, the less that is a perceivable amount, the better off we are. But yes, having a little bit of um, a little bit of up your sleeve, so a bit of extra. But quite frankly, like how many times do we not do that with everything else, right? We always have a bit extra in case uh, we want to reframe or something. So that's that's pretty reasonable. Hey, um, the other thing that people are asking about in terms of cost, that we might be able to give some guide on is like what are the main costs? Um, just sort of percentage more than numbers. And I'm thinking obviously crew is is vital and probably the actors are above the line costs, the biggest thing of all. But leaving that aside for a second, if I'm setting up one of these sort of typical ones we've been talking about today, it's got a 2.8 kind of pitch. It's not, it's not the, a, a peculiar thing and it's, uh, you know, five meters high by like 10 meters and it's done sensibly. Where am I sort of going to see most of the cost being dropped? Uh, definitely the panels for right. sure. Um, and the processors to some degree, the, the graphics cards, although like I mentioned, we're doing a lot of work to minimize the, the hit in the wallet on the graphics side, um, but it's head and shoulders, it's the panels for sure. 
So before I leave this, if there was somewhere that they people wanted to go, that like let's say they, uh, well, I'd love to learn more about this. This is fascinating. Where where on Epic's site is there a place that somebody can go, or is there something that we can help people with in terms of following up on the web? Yes, we we just uh, created a, a pipeline document for this process in Camera VFX reference pipeline in our on our docs page. So UnrealEngineDocs.com has this information. Uh, there's also a link to, you, you mentioned hardware, there's also a link in our reference pipeline document now. If you just go to the new releases for 425, you'll see this information. Uh, inside the reference pipeline document, there's a link to uh, recommended hardware for computers, for switchers, uh, network gear, sync gear, uh, basically all the, the bits and pieces required Put this together, uh, and different levels of equipment too, or different uh, different levels in terms of complexity and uh, resolution from graphics cards and such, so that you don't have to just use the high end if you're testing. If you're just at home, and you want to figure this out. There's different options there, so we try to uh, assemble all of that into a document uh, for users, whether you're at home just working on this or you're, you're trying to do the next big movement, so. Um, the other question that uh, a couple of people had was about VR. We've been discussing LED walls. Um, maybe you could just discuss that because it's kind of like a, if you had a Venn diagram, they overlap. Like at the SIDGRAPH uh, launch thing where we had the setup, the cube, and it was the motorbike with um, uh, Matt Workman, it was great, but to the side was also a whole VR overlay on that so that people could scout. I don't want to spend too right. long on it, just give us a bit of a handle because we don't want to imply that the only virtual production is LED screens. That's right. Uh, so when you build interactive content, there's lots of ways you can use it, right? You could have full CG content. It doesn't have to be with live action, obviously. Uh, the VR aspect is a really useful tool when you're trying to design your world. Um, and you can immerse yourself in that world. You can work interactively with others to build that world get feedback on the fly. And we spent a lot of time integrating uh, our multi-user tools and, and communication process so that when you change something in VR, it's updating other machines or other users in that same world. Uh, we also have uh, the Vive Tracker now with uh, full uh, LiveLink support. So again, if you want to set up a small system at home, whether it's tracking for VR or just you want to put it on a camera, and, and look on a monitor and create camera moves. You have a way to track at home without uh, you know the big Hollywood budget prices. So we're trying to, and in fact, our, our staff is doing that quite a bit with the COVID situation. We have, our, a lot of us have our home, uh, home studios, if you will, because we have to keep testing. We have to keep uh, breaking things and trying to fix them and sharing results. So when we get on our Zoom calls, you often see people with all kinds of, of gear in the background with these home studios. And so uh, that's a big part of our, our process too, is, is to, to think about what we can do because we don't want to build 30 studios at, you know, with some ungodly amount of money uh, on each. And so we're all looking for ways to do this more cost effectively, whether we're testing or, or designing uh, or just collaborating on something. So um yeah, we're working on integrating in hardware at all levels for, for every type of user. 
So let's build out from that. So there's some questions by Cameron Smith and uh, Joseph Fagan and just a bunch of other people about uh, green screen into UE4, because clearly one of the things I could do is just have a green screen, a virtual environment, and I could just be placing my person in that. Is there any um, sort of uh, tips you could give in terms of virtual production, like for how to do that? Are we better trying to have some external key that's providing a key signal? Are we better keying it inside Unreal? Like, just give me something about how I would go about doing that, where I'm no longer that concerned about the LED side of things. I'm just thinking, hey, I can do a green screen and I can do a virtual world. Right. Well, uh, you can use Composure to pull a key. So if you have a video card, uh, like a, a Kona 5 card, for example, Azure card, Blackmagic has lots of cards too that uh, are different cards we can use. And actually all that is... Uh, referenced on our hardware site, the cards that we typically uh, recommend. Uh, but absolutely, you can use either one. Whether you do the keying outside in a hardware compositor, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But if you want to have it all in one system, you can use Composure, which is part of Unreal Engine, to do the actual compositing. And in terms of that workflow, um, that's that's been really like the the sort of precursor to the LEDs. Like before, we were talking about LED screens. There were lots of companies doing really good work with virtual sets, virtual environments. And I, I would say in the questions that we've been asked about how do I get into this, I think that's one of the easiest ways to get into this. You can learn a lot from doing virtual production of a green screen environment um, way before you need to be worrying about LED screens if you're a, if you're a relatively new user. Absolutely. Uh, and all the traditional filmmaking uh, processes uh, and tools are still valid in a sense. I mean, you have to understand if you want to be involved in virtual production, you mentioned getting started. If you know about cameras, if you understand lenses, if, if you understand uh, video signals, those are all still super important to this process. If you understand uh, time code and sync, if you're more of an engineer, if you understand computer graphics and real-time rendering. So virtual production is really a combination of all those different things. It's not its own thing that's that's separate. It's really all of those things combined. It's interactive graphics, it's filmmaking, it's engineering, it's, it's artistry, uh, and, and that's what's really exciting about it. But there's no virtual production class you go to, quote-unquote, to learn all this stuff. It's it's really understanding the foundation of these different pieces. And once you have that experience and, and, and knowledge base, then you can apply it to this type of production. So um, to that end, I guess, people have seen the Unreal Engine 5 demo. I'm not gonna go into the details of Unreal 5, but is there a rule of thumb of like how much you feel this is gonna be thrown out the, the window and I'm gonna have to start over again, or that a lot of this is gonna be relevant well, you laugh, but I yeah. mean, no, I know that's the thing about technology, right? You do this cool stuff, and 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 that's a factor. Is you 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 have user base, a user base, and uh, you don't want to have to tell them you're starting from scratch, right? And, and that's not the case with UE five. But the big thing that's different there uh, is really uh, the storage in terms of speed and capacity, because the process in which content is getting to the GPU is a little bit different. Um, but it's not, uh, I'll say that the, the, the bulk of the hardware you have now is still going to be quite useful. Certainly the graphics cards, um, memory, um, 
motherboards, that type of thing. But but storage, high speed storage is really the main area that it's leveraging far and away more than anything else. And so if you have a system that maybe needs a bit more of that, or you have a motherboard that uh, doesn't support the uh, uh, NVMe SSDs, something like that, then you might you might need to invest in a new machine. But you could take you could take that graphics card out and put it in the new machine too. So you you wouldn't necessarily be starting from scratch. So a couple of specific questions to that end. Um, if I'm doing something like a green screen, placing someone in an environment, the question is like, how much do you personally, just Matt's opinion, think that we are matching real camera motion blur and and, and depth of field with what's happening in UE4 at the moment? So I'm not talking about UE5 right now. I'm just talking about mm -hmm. at the moment. If I'm doing virtual production, do you feel like those blurs and motion blurs, as well as obviously the rack defocus ones, are matching for your eye? If we are doing a green screen, yeah. Comp, is that what you mean? Yeah. Um, to an extent, it, it, it takes some noodling. You know, there's kind of going back to what we were talking about before. You have the mathematical emulation of what we think is happening with the physical camera. And we apply those variables in the computer to try and match it. But uh, I wouldn't say it's one to one. No, I think uh, it does take a bit of fudging. And the way the uh, motion blur, for example, there's the object blur, the way that engines work is there's the, the blur generated from a moving object and the blur generated from a moving camera. And you would think, uh, oh, well, that's kind of the same thing. The cam whether the camera's moving or an object's moving, it's just, it takes a picture and whatever's uh, moving during the exposure, then that's your blur. And, and in a sense, that's correct in the real world, but in the graphics world, they're handled a little bit differently. And it's, it's something that we are working to have more control over uh, to, to match the physical world because there's there's so many variables in a camera uh and the, the type of shutter the exposure time the lenses all those things affect the blur and we're not emulating it to that level of detail yeah and also from a vfx point of view you know if i'm doing rack defocus if i get a really shallow depth of field like a, it's a 120 mil lens and i've got lights behind that turn into those sort of ovals um you know, the, the number of blades on the actual physical aperture of a lens will affect what the bokeh looks like. So it's, yeah. these things are not like a blur, yeah. blur is a blur. It's like super. But, but I now am doing the exact thing I was going to not do, which is I'm hitting this from a VFX point of view. And the next question I want to ask you actually came from somebody that said, hey, you guys are kind of asking all these questions about VFX artists and lighting artists learning this stuff. What about a game person? How easy do you think it is from a game developer to enter virtual production? And is that something that you know you'd recommend, or is it uh, too steep a learning curve? Oh, not at all. Uh, game developers are more than welcome. In fact, they're they are ideal for this workflow because they understand interactive graphics, and and that's one of the steeper curves in this process coming from a more traditional VFX background. How real how real time renders work. Uh, that different from traditional rendering and the demands of a real-time renderer that are quite different. And so if you understand how to build great real-time assets, there's a, there's a job for you in virtual production, I assure you. Uh, so understanding filmmaking, sure, you need to learn that. You need to understand how this, this process diff 
differs from uh, from game development. And it's funny, we have that within Epic. We we have people from, of course, we have hundreds of people from gaming background, obviously. But now this, we have more and more people like myself coming from the film world. And to see these two worlds come together is really interesting because we will be in conversations on both sides where uh, one side thinks they're talking about something that's very obvious and very intuitive and we're deep into it and someone raised their hand and say, hold on a second, you know, what, what, what's, what does that phrase mean? What are you talking about there? I don't quite get that and vice versa. So it's really interesting to see this come together and it's happening all over the world as we, we go down this road together, but absolutely uh, there is a, a, a demand, I would say a need for uh, professionals from the game world to come into virtual production. And I think the best teams will have combinations of both people from, from both spot. backgrounds. Yeah. 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 I was talking to uh, a friend, uh, Dan Grossman, I'm sure I might be mentioning this, um, Mag Opus, who he just like, he was just totally embracing that concept. Like you need both, right? You don't need a bunch of film people sitting around trying to learn stuff that is intuitive to a game developer. And similarly, Absolutely. there's a language for a film director that a game developer might need to learn. Um, and yeah, it's an, it's an approach, you know, because of background, obviously. I think the example we always go is, you know, if I'm doing a shot in film, I dress to the lens. I don't care about the mathematical continuity. I just care that it looks good. Or a game developer tends to build a world so you can go anywhere in the world and you don't think to move the table up off the floor and hover it three inches above just because I'm at this particular camera angle. Whereas a film guy would be like, yeah, we'll just, you know, totally lift that table and stick some wooden blocks under it if it looks better. That's uh, so true. And I think that's one of the biggest transformations of this process is this idea of world building because it can be done so efficiently. And, and that's not to say you have to, uh, create the entire world to final, but you can get very far along uh, pretty quickly uh, as opposed to just saying, I'm going to do just this section of it. Um, it's amazing when you approach it that way, what you get in return and, and to work because I'm now that I've been immersed in it for a while to work with, with people that think that way of building worlds. And then, like you said, now I'm going to go lens it. Um, is really interesting. So what we're seeing now is this this collaboration between screenwriter, director, world builder, so that uh, it's not about the shot. It's about where we are in these worlds first to really develop those worlds to the level that they're needed before they worry about specific camera shots, unless it's a special case. But generally defining the world, the interesting parts of the world, where we could be uh, is, is becoming a real process in uh, art direction, production design, and actual asset building. So I've got two more technical questions, but I do want to sneak in one before we leave this, because it was a great question that I hadn't even thought of um, about this idea of roles and uh, backgrounds. And somebody asked, uh, we don't discuss the role of the producer very much. How do you feel the role of a producer is different with a virtual production? Because we're, we've discussed directors, we discussed lighting, you know, not, fair enough too. But uh, producers, it's quite different than the sort of almost waterfall kind of one after another pre, you know, previous production, production post thing. How do you find producers are adapting? I think the biggest challenge is 
is taking what was traditionally uh, budgets from art department, construction, and visual effects, because now really what you're doing is a bit of both. You're taking some some of that labor that was from set physical set builds uh, and construction and grips and, and all the folks involved in creating physical sets and some of the visual effects that were all created in post and putting that in production. So I think the challenge has been how much of we are we actually using from physical production versus visual effects? And that's the part they get, they, of course they get the budgets, they get the schedules and all of that bit. It's understanding at the end of the day, where would this have gone? How, how when, I'm, when I'm approaching a film, because each department needs their budget, right? And, and so divvying that up and understanding, working with the, the director and breaking down these scripts and the visual effects supervisor and producer, that it's such an important process now more than ever when you're doing a script breakdown to understand, okay, where can we best leverage this technology and this approach? Let's circle these pages in these in the story that we can get the most bang for our buck. And there's also the concept now, Mike, of, of it's more for the studios or the content holders of repurposing assets. So you start, that's when their eyes start to light up is this idea of, and we've, we've all been talking about it as an industry forever and a day. But now that the assets can be created uh, as final content in camera, not just a visualization tool, I think the industry is waking up and saying, hey, this, these are really worth something. I can take these worlds and I can change the texture. I can change the lighting. I can rotate them around. I can move them out a little bit. And all of a sudden, I have a different world. And so now I, you're, I can build a library of these worlds for my storytellers to choose from. Doesn't mean they're all going to be used in the story, but at least to hash out ideas and start brainstorming and, and kit bashing different scenes together and, and coming up with concepts very quickly. And, and I can very well have assets that I could uh, repurpose for the actual show too. That's really an interesting uh, evolution that we're seeing now with all of this. Yeah, I think that also raises two important points. One is just the marvelous world of kit bashing, <laughs> but the other <laughs> one is uh, it, it also from a we're talking about producers. Like at a at a studio production level, it also really matters about uh, asset management, and we shouldn't skip over the fact that you know reuse is as much an asset management uh, database problem as it is you know, file retrieval problem as it is technically being able to do it. I mean, I've, I'm sure you're the same. We've been occasions where someone's gone, don't we have a bunch of, well, they're on a tape somewhere or they're backed up somewhere. I can't, I'd take me so long to find them. I just make them again. <laughs> no question about it. And, and, and we've all been there many times. And so this is definitely a hot topic uh, inside of Epic and within these studios too, because you're, you're absolutely right. It, really the value of the assets are really, uh, uh, in so much as you can access them intelligently, efficiently, and uh, give access to content creators to review them remotely and uh, not just in 2D, but actually in 3D. So a lot of work in terms of infrastructure that needs to be done to really facilitate that. So I've got two geeky questions to finish on because I want this to be a deep dive. So I'm going to go back in. Um, one of them is just related to this, right, which is so 
on a modern like an ARRI camera or something that's uh, running with iData or the lens and stuff, there is metadata streaming now reliably. Now, it used to be that you could have, everything would get transcoded and you'd lose all the metadata. And even though you had this marvelous lensing information on set, it was all gone by the time you got to post. I don't think we're there now, but how much is uh, Epic and Unreal kind of focused on that kind of ARRI hardcore metadata or the stuff that are coming out? Because obviously if you are embedding metadata with the imagery <clears throat> on set, you've got a very reliable source of data. Whereas if I've got a secondary file of someone saying, oh, we were shooting on a 35 for that shot, you're like, well, if you say so, but I'm not gonna trust that. Yeah, so we're actually talking to pretty much all of the lens manufacturers that, are, that have smart lenses where we can tap into that metadata on the fly and stream that to a PC, especially if we're doing any kind of uh, uh, interactive uh, lens distortion for compositing, or if we can use information like Fizz data, for example. Um, that's incredibly useful. Um, another important part for us is the camera center, or some people call it the nodal shift. So understanding where that real camera center is right. interactively, yeah. because we have to match the virtual camera to that. Uh, and so there is a calibration process to that, but but when you pull focus, that center can actually change. It's not, even if you have a prime lens and you've calibrated it and, and matched that true cam, that optical center, to the physical camera, um, those lenses breathe. And so your actual focal length can shift, which means that nodal point will actually shift slightly. And so we have to be able to, to track that and recreate that on the fly. Now you mentioned coming out of the cameras. The reason we haven't used the camera metadata uh, on the day or in real time to date is because it does take a few frames from the image processing and deburying and all that, especially with these large format sensors, to come out the SDI tap in the back of the camera. And then we have to send it to a card on our machine to interpret that image and extract that metadata. And that's just a few extra frames. Now, um, there's other stuff we are doing, we, the rendering, the tracking, and all that business in parallel to the image processing and all of that, but it, it we don't want to have to wait for that metadata to get to it before we can apply it to the virtual camera or lens in real time. It doesn't so, mean we wouldn't use it in post, absolutely, but in terms of real time, we haven't uh, used the actual uh, metadata that's embedded in the imagery to date. I'm going to sneak in a question here on that. So this is this is a for my benefit. I swear to God, I I just. <laughs> But I've got you and it's such a treat. Hey, my problem is this. I've got my lens and I'm focused on you and behind you is an LED wall, right? So the LED wall is out of focus because it's three meters behind you just to use math, right? But but what's on the wall isn't three meters. It's, you know, another three meters because it's, you know, virtually um, a further away wall. And my problem is this. If I'm focusing on you, the wall goes out of focus by the fact that it's not at your point. But by the same token, it should go even more out of focus because it's three meters away. But if you just dialed in the the six meters, it would be too out of focus. If that makes sense because it's you know not allowing for the fact the camera is actually itself providing some defocus. And I'm I'm I don't know if this is solved or 
is it I just don't know how to do it? But it just seems to me an interesting problem, right? Like the the wall gives the illusion that the mountain is miles away, but it's actually only, you know, 10 meters behind the actor or five meters behind the actor. Right. So there's this idea of relative depth of field uh, from the, this, the projection surface. So the actual LED wall surface of where the content's being projected, like you said, there's a certain distance that the physical surface that that content is projected from the camera. Then you have to know, okay, well, how far is that content in that world away from the, the LED wall in that same world space? So if that mountain is another 100 meters from the wall, then that depth of field should reflect that relative to what the physical camera is doing. Because you're right, the physical camera is only going to change what's projected on the wall. And so that's, that's in one space. And so if you're not doing anything to the content that is supposed to be behind the wall, then that's technically wrong. Doesn't mean you can't get away with it a lot of the times, yeah, sure. but technically that's incorrect. But you, so we, we've talked about this a lot, as you can imagine, and um, we're fortunate or have been fortunate so far uh, where that doesn't, that flaw doesn't show up, but you're hundred percent correct that it's not, accurate and there are cases where it is wrong and you may have to fix it in post but the tr the way to handle it is to have a relative depth of field adjustment to that plane to that plane in in, in the world space of your environment and of your physical set so that in this case that's that's the led wall that's because that's what the camera sees and then you have to understand the distance of what the camera is doing to the to the imagery at at that uh, in, in that plane and how objects that are projected in that plane should change even more than what the camera's doing. Yeah, I think the reason I use the original example of the three meters plus another three is best illustrated, I guess, by a window. If I've got a window, like a digital window, and I'm mm -hmm. seeing mountains through the window, then clearly the, the window is three meters behind you plus the notional three of virtual space. Of course, the mountain seen through that window is notionally, as you said, like a hundred meters back. And yeah, it just seems to me that uh, if things are way off in the distance, you're going to probably get away with it. Cause like who can pick it, right? Right. When you're getting these things that are just on the edge of depth of field. Cause you know, obviously there is no, there's well, no I, one in focus or out of focus. It's a gradual kind of thing. But I think, I think what you're getting at is that you can, because if the, if the window, let's, if we just say the window is actually at six feet, if it were physically built, it was the, the yep. same distance per second, then that, that uh, defocus uh, should be the same. If it's a one-to-one -one from where, where it would have been built physically and where it's actually projected on the LED wall, yep. then that distance is the same. If it's different, if it's closer, which you can do, you can actually put content that's supposed to be closer uh, you just have to be careful. You can't do too aggressive with that, but you can do it. Then that technically should be more in focus. And that's yeah. actually a bigger challenge. That That is uh, actually, I don't know how you did it. <laughs> Unfocused stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that's like, that's getting into deep learning stuff where you're using, you know, um, that's, a, that's another kettle of fish. But uh, what we have found, and we've been at least in, in our, um, and our thought study, and, and based on our collective experience working on set in this situation, is having a tool, because no matter what you do mathematically, 
at some point the DP doesn't care and they want to make it look the way they want to make it look, it looks good, right? Yeah. And so if you have a tool that calculates what it should be, that relative depth of field change from the projection on whatever distance that wall is from your, from your camera, and that's another reason um, we need the focus distance stream live to figure all this stuff out. Um, then you have a dial to tune that if they want to hold that focus a bit more, blur it a bit further from what the camera is doing. Uh, but starting with the correct mathematical solution so that we can show them, yes, this is what it actually would be doing. And they say, well, that's great, but I want to do this other thing here. I want to soften this up a bit or whatever. We're very kind to indulge my rat hole on focus, but uh, I love that stuff too. I'm such a <laughs> hey. So my big last question that was the one I was heading towards technically is: so we may uh, be wonderful and be able to get final pixels in camera, but we should also acknowledge that there's going to be a bunch of occasions where it makes sense to take this into post. What's the attitude at Epic about packaging up information in such a way that post has kind of like it unpackaged, because in a sense, I need continuity of what was in shot, but I need like, if I did lift the table up in this shot, I need to know that if that take is used in the next take, we decided we didn't want the virtual table lifted up. So we put it back down again. And it's not enough just to give me the scene because that was a shot specific kind of thing. So it's almost like you need to, to continuity or time code mark anything that's and everything so that I can mix and match and the guy in post or the woman in post isn't pulling a hair out or his hair out trying to yeah. sort of reconstruct it. Yeah. It sounds like you've been in some of our R and D meetings, Mike. <laughs> it's <laughs> exactly what kind of stuff we're talking about. Uh, we have a new tool coming out in 426 called level snapshot that is designed to deal with this exact type of thing where you have essentially a Delta that's happening of some sort. You did something just exactly how you described it in the moment on the day that may not be a global change that you're making the scene. In fact, it probably isn't. It's something that happened in the moment that you need to track. And that's that whole idea is this meta layer on top of your base level that lives with those files so that uh, you can easily apply those to get back to the state of that. At this point, it's still effectively a take, of course, because we're in virtual production world and we're not in, in shot land yet. But the delivery to the VFX vendor would include that level snapshot with that that meta information of any transforms, any modifications made to the base level. Yeah, sure. well, it seems to me that that is not only just incredibly helpful to the post people, but you don't want to slow down on set because you're going, wait, 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 wait. If you're going to do that, I need to take a note of it. Stop for a second. I'm going to lose my track here. Absolutely. And then and then you're shooting again. And well, where, where was everything last Tuesday? What what, what did we do? That, you know, that we're going back to that scene again. And oh, my God, you know, it's take four, scene 26. And uh, so you have that, all of those offsets that you're safety net. And, and, and again, absolutely critical for post, but even for production. And uh, yeah, you want to do a pickup shot. I need it. Yeah, absolutely and 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 the way the to the degree that we tweak the the lighting on set with light cards and flags and you've seen some examples of this but to those of you that haven't in addition to the normal lighting of the virtual world there's additional uh surface lights if you will on uh the the led volume 
that you can layer. And the point of those is to actually optimize the physical set and actors lighting. It's really not for the virtual world itself. So you don't see them in camera, but they're, they're light cards and flags. So you can think of them like just primitive shapes that you can scale, you can change the transparency, you can change the color, the intensity, and yeah, they're used sure on, all the time. On top of a real mountain, I might have my camera assistant person, whatever, holding up a piece of poly to bounce some extra light into your fill side, just so you don't look too contrasty. No reason why I have to have somebody on stage doing that. I can just put a, a virtual piece of square poly on the, uh, on, the, on the wall and voila, area light. Right. And so you have to track all that too, of course, yeah. because that's what made the actor look the way they did, exactly how the DP wanted. So um, just another reason why it's so important to, to have that snapshot. I mean, I, we're running out of time, but I could just talk to you about this stuff for, forever. But I'm so excited that not only that this is being done, but you know, quite often with these things, you're like, oh, I just can't wait till we finally get our hands on this because like, it's a few years off. But this changes so quickly. Um, you know, that these ideas come up. And then, as you said, like way back in the day, like as <laughs> yeah. an um, so, yeah, that fast moving is, I, you know, some people might find it a curse. I find it a gift that we, we know that there are things that would be great to happen and we're not going to have to wait till, you know, after I've retired before they appear in the film. <laughs> it, 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 it is exciting and, it, and it's a challenge. It's a lot of fun. It's a fast moving train and we're all on it. And we are also spending a lot of time though uh, thinking about making sure our, our users uh, when we put out a new version a new release that they're not having to do a lot of re-engineering if they've made tools in engine and 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 dedicating more support so that they can make that jump with us from from one uh, version to the next and aren't bound to the previous version just because of the the legwork that they're going to have to do to make that transition. And that's that's the other side of the coin is when things are moving this fast and you really want to take advantage of all the latest and greatest stuff, uh, that we want to make sure our users can do that and and, and are interested in, in helping them in that regard because they do have access to the tools at a low level. It's not just an application they get a license to and touch a bunch of buttons. They are customizing. They are doing great things with it. So. Um, it, it's just part of the process and, and it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's very exciting. I guess I should have said this at the beginning, Matt, but if people are new to virtual production, I totally recommend the pulse because it was a little less geeky than this, um, and had terrific uh, input from the, uh, the panel. But having said that, man, I've had so much fun talking to you today. So thank you so much. Uh, a lot of fun for me too, Mike. I really enjoyed it. Well, thanks guys for that. I appreciate Matt taking the time to answer those questions. And I think it really provided a nice bookend to that virtual event. For those of you who haven't seen that event, there are links in the FX podcast article on FX Guide, and you can easily find that or just do a search for The Pulse Episode 2, virtual production episode, and you can find a YouTube recording of that event. Well, that's it for this FX podcast. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. 
broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.